This is the Thrive Podcast with Shiloh Missionary Baptist Church. And now, Pastor Fred Jeff Smith. Hello, welcome to the 36th edition of the Thrive Podcast with the Shiloh Missionary Baptist Church. I'm Fred Jeff Smith, pastor of Shiloh, and I appreciate you taking the time uh, to either view and or listen to uh, our podcast today. If you are viewing on uh, YouTube, thank you. If you are listening on iTunes, thank you very much. Tell others about the Thrive Podcast. We're, we're so happy to learn that there are people who are listening to us from different parts of the world. Uh, it's not just a local thing, but that we're being heard in places around the world, and we're grateful uh, to God for that opportunity. And I am grateful today uh, to welcome my friend Omar Safar to the Thrive Podcast. Uh, Omar is a doctoral candidate uh, from Louisiana State University uh, in political science. Uh, he's a native of Kansas City, Missouri. Uh, he's been with us now for about two years, going on three years uh, with us here at Shiloh. And I wanted to have Omar on because I think that he has a very interesting uh, story to tell. Uh, Omar, thank you for agreeing to share with us today. Thank you. Tell us who is Omar Saffer. Who is Omar? Um, a believer, um, someone who came to Christ, I think, in an untraditional way, non-traditional way. Um, I would say that that's foundational in my outlook on everything. Um, whether it's professional, whether it's me being a student, being a husband, um, being an educator, um, looking outside the box um, that sometimes is placed on in on us in, within a religious setting. So, coming from an unorthodox background and becoming a believer in that manner. It gives me an outside perspective, I think, that's crucial in my outlook on every single aspect of my life. So t talk about that non-traditional road that you traveled uh, that brought you into Christianity. Yeah, so um, my father's Muslim, still is. Um, so um, uh, probably up until towards the end of elementary school, before my parents first separated, um, I used to go to the masjid. Um, I remember it vividly. It was very different than, <laughs> than the church. Uh, I remember they always had food, or one of them in particular had food, and I loved it. <laughs> and, you know, the kids would play at first, and then they would try to get us settled down to pray. And afterwards, we just ran around and ate. And um, very different. Um but my, after my parents separated, I didn't have any type of religious um, upbringing until I finished high school. Um, my mom eventually went back to church, um, probably my senior year of high school. Uh, never forced me to go, never asked me to go. Or she would ask me to go, but never if I would say no, which I always did. Mm -hmm. She consistently would say every ask me every Sunday morning, "Do you want to go to church?" And I would always say no. <laughs> <laughs> but she never she never stopped. She mm -hmm. never stopped asking. Um, so it wasn't until I went to um, undergrad uh, at Valparaiso University, which is in Northwest Indiana, about forty minutes into Indiana from Chicago. Um, that's a Lutheran school. So my first Christian, I don't know if I want to say experience, but definitely foundational in the education mm -hmm. starts there. Okay. Um, and I think the fact that being black growing up in the middle of Kansas City, um, going to nowhere's Indiana, 96% um, white, we were about 2.5% black. And I remember at the time it was... 45% of all black students, male and female, were there originally, at least for sports. Mm -hmm. So being completely culture shocked, um, becoming very inward, um, kind of pushing away, not having any type of familiarity with anything. People sound different. They look different. Um, 
the culture's different, everything's different, really started this thirst for something more. And I believe that that's when Jesus made himself apparent, or at least I saw him for the first time Mm -hmm. then. Mm-hmm. through that experience. So when you had this spiritual awakening, can I call it that? Uh, when you had this spiritual experience uh, and you decided uh, as an adult that you wanted to be uh, a Christian, that, mm-hmm. that you wanted to be a follower of Jesus Christ, did that automatically lead you back into a traditional church experience or or was your walk more of an individual walk that ultimately led you back into a church experience you know both (laughs) (laughs) um very interesting even the story of how i got here the lord has really always connected me with someone i remember after my after i came back from greece studying in greece um i met a friend of my mother's and he was from Northwest Indiana and his sister was from there and she was the first lady of a church, mm-hmm. very small church. Um, we're talking about maybe 25 people in Michigan city, Dondi Williams. Um, so at that point I had just officially became Christian. I had just accepted Jesus Christ as my Lord and savior mm-hmm. and a black church family pops up out of nowhere, <laughs> no, uh, thin air and gives me, um, he, his, he gives me his sister's number and connects me with them. And they invite me over immediately when I get back to school after that summer. And I was in the family. I was involved in mm-hmm. a very small, but they had maybe about 10 teenagers, um, close knit Michigan city is a small community, very close knit, very tight knit community. I was involved in a black church but at the same time, I'm thirsting for knowledge. I'm thirsting for all of these different things. And I'm now venturing off into other areas. I'm keeping that stable because mm-hmm. this is this is a taste of home mixed with Jesus. Mm-hmm. But there's something else out there. You know, what? what is this whole thing? How can we all have this different understanding? Because I'm, I have no foundation in this background. How can we all have these different Christian experiences and, and, and they never intertwine sometimes. Mm-hmm. And so just going to different parts of going to Lutheran churches or sometimes going to Orthodox, Eastern Orthodox churches or going to these different places and um, minor in theology, all of these different things and, and trying to capture and get a handle on what is this Jesus thing really about and mm-hmm. what is my own Christian identity? Mm-hmm. So you're an outlier uh, from a statistical standpoint, uh, in that your acceptance of Christ came after the age of 15. Uh, according to statistical studies that I'm familiar with, uh, most people, if they don't accept Christ by the age of 15, will never accept Christ. Hmm. Uh, uh, Southern Baptist surveys have shown that uh, Pew uh, study surveys have shown that some, something about the age of 15 uh, tends to stick out. Uh, so you coming to Christ at, at an age beyond that age is is kind of an outlier to the statistical data. And I know you're a person who's, who's big on statistical <laughs> data. <laughs> coming to the church or, or coming to Christ from a non-traditional church setting. You weren't raised in Sunday school. You didn't go to vacation Bible school. You didn't you you weren't forced to go to church on Sunday morning if you didn't want to. You so everything about church life is new and different for you. So as someone who sees it from a fresh set of eyes, uh what what are your thoughts about the way that we do church? <clears throat> And be honest. It's okay. It's okay to be honest. Perplexing. It's the full range of thoughts and emotions. Um, Some aspects, I think, really foster a sense of community. Other aspects, it's peculiar. For instance, the the greet 
the greeting section where it's like 90 seconds at tops where you shake hands with two people. <laughs> this this aspect that this is fostering fellowship is, is, is perplexing. I don't understand the importance of that. And it's like, where did this come from? Who added this? <laughs> Actually, I shortened it. Uh, uh, for, for those who are not familiar, uh, Shiloh has a, a fellowship period uh, that, that is that is very brief. Your description is absolutely right. Uh, when my father was pastor here, uh, Charles Turnbull Smith, uh, they had a fellowship period that was decidedly longer. Uh, <laughs> and uh, my, my first experience with it, because it wasn't a part of the way uh, the church was done when I was a child, uh, it, it became something that was added later. And my experience with it uh, was when I first came over here after my father had his first stroke and I was uh, helping him by providing uh, the messages on Sunday morning, the eight o'clock worship. And they would have this period in the middle of the worship where they would stop and they would say, well, let, 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 let's greet one another. And literally, <laughs> everybody in the church got up and they moved <laughs> everywhere. <laughs> And I would come down out of the pulpit and I would walk down the center aisle and I would shake hands with people. I would walk down the back and up the side shaking hands with people. And I could get back into the pulpit and sit down. And they were still, greeting went on and went on and went on for, for what seemed to me as an eternity of time. And one of the things that I determined at that moment was if I'm ever the pastor of this church, <laughs> this is going to change. <laughs> this is going to change. And, and, and so uh, I feel like you have a time to greet people coming into the worship mm-hmm. experience. You have a time to greet people at the conclusion of the worship experience. I don't think that we need to take up 10 minutes of time uh, uh, in, in, in the middle of the worship experience uh, for, for, for a greeting period. And, and, and to me... It's about the management of of the time that is given to the worship experience. There's, you know, I joke about it, uh, but but there's actually uh, I'm I'm quite serious about time. Uh, you and I know each other. We've had conversations uh, several times, and you know that I, I can be quite anal uh, when it comes <laughs> to time, because I believe that I should value your time, uh, and, and I think that most people respect the fact that you value their time and are willing to give you more of their time because they feel like you're not going to waste their time. Now, are you saying that fellowship is is a waste of time? I'm saying that taking up 10 minutes of the worship of Christ mm-hmm. for shaking hands and greeting one another and talking about last night's football game and, and talking about the party that you're going to go to next week and, and catching up on fraternity and sorority data, which is what was going on. And I know because I was making these circles as you were going <laughs> around. I think that that's not the best use of worship time. So that's the logic behind, behind, behind that. Yeah. You know, and, and so I've attended, I've, I've visited a lot of churches and it's something quite consistent mm-hmm. and it's not necessarily a bad thing. It's just peculiar to me. Why? Yeah. Why do you put announcements here versus here? <laughs> well, now you're talking about the science of, of, of structuring a worship experience. And there's no good place to put announcements. There is no good place to put announcements in a corporate worship experience. I have friends and colleagues who put the announcements at the very start of the worship. Uh, so as not to break the flow of the worship experience. I have friends and colleagues, and I myself, in our 11 o'clock worship, put the announcements at the very end of the worship. Again, so as not to break the flow of the worship. Shiloh traditionally had the announcements where it is in the 8 o'clock worship, which is in the middle of the worship experience. And under my father, announcements could take 20 minutes because along with announcements came pastoral remarks. And you didn't know my father, but my father was not short-winded at all. <laughs> when he got on a topic, and, and especially if he felt passionately about the topic, he could talk. 
and he could go on and he could and 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 it, you know the people who 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 are members of Shiloh especially those who remember my father those are one of those are some of the things that endeared him to them the fact that he was so personable in fact one of the things one of the criticisms that I hear about me is that I'm not as personable uh, as my father and I, I think that 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 probably has some justification uh, uh, but there is no good place to put announcements yet announcements are necessary it's a necessary thing that you keep members informed as to the ongoing affairs of the church and of the community and so you, you try to put it in the best place that you can and you try to make it as attractive as you can. I think that we hit on something when we went to the video announcements. Uh, I, I think that uh, Kenyatta does a wonderful job with uh, our announcements here at Shiloh, but there is no good place to put <laughs> announcements in a corporate worship experience. <clears throat> Makes complete sense. Yeah. So the blending of, of, of your Christian experience with your academic uh, experience. You, you are a doctoral candidate nearing the end of, of, of your doctoral work uh, in political science. It, it, how does your spirituality play into your academic work? I would say that my research interests are completely inspired by my my spirituality, by my relationship with Jesus Christ. So, my in, in general, my, my research area is um, civic behavior um, and religion as they both relate to politics. Mm -hmm. But specifically with religion, I'm interested in clergy as political actors. Mm -hmm. um, maybe not overt running for um, office, but as more of a small level political actors, because as we know, um, might be a part of a sermon. Um, what type of interest groups or, or, or meetings you might have a union or you might have NRA that might come to a church, right? Mm -hmm. And hold meetings. So I'm interested in that. So my, my interest in my, my understanding uh, or what I'm trying to understand within my research is completely, I believe is positioned by God. That's not something that I set out 15 years ago as a kid, and I'm like, yeah, I want to research. <laughs> mm -hmm. Not at all. Mm -hmm. um, I don't even get those research, that, that interest, until I start maturing in my relationship uh, with Jesus Christ and noticing things and being positioned in certain areas where they're asking me this. Well, well what is this? From your experience traveling here, what is this? What is that? And so... Just my relationship with individuals, having the ability or, or the opportunity to go to attend house churches in China, which are illegal, mm -hmm. um, participating in, in, in Bible studies in Greece or Cyprus, and learning and seeing what these people are doing and, and how this impacts their understanding of God focused my research area. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm a believer that uh, the worship of of God of of Jesus, uh, and, and I would dare say it's probably true for other religions besides Christianity, is as much cultural as it is theological. Uh, uh, that that culture plays a definite role in the intensity of worship uh, and in uh, the outcomes expected from worship <clears throat> I, I to, to, to keep it in the context of, of Christianity and black white culture uh, I'm a firm believer that while blacks and whites worship the same God and pray to the same Jesus that we see Jesus from two profoundly different perspectives and that our perspectives are not based solely uh, upon uh, theology, but are based upon culture, uh, experience, uh, and, 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 and geography uh, to a large extent. Uh, that uh, 
the God of the oppressor, which is what historically white people have been in this nation, is a distinctly different God than the God of the oppressed. Mm. And, and our, our expected outcome from the worship of the same God is decidedly different because our perspective of him is different. White people, uh, and, and, and please don't take this as a knock, I'm, 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 I'm speaking observationally, not critically. White people view God and, and, and view their religion from the standpoint of good and bad behavior. They talk about doing good things and, 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 and having uh, appropriate and correct behavior. Uh, but for black folk, historically, even in the year 2018, uh, where uh, by and large black people are experiencing more uh, uh, financial success, more academic success than they have in any other point in their history, it is still true that for us, uh, Jesus is a way maker. <laughs> and he's a door opener and he's a heart fixer and he's a mind really he he is the god who relieves us of our oppression he's the god that protects us from our enemies he's the god that lifts us from the burdens that others the oppressors have placed upon us so our view of god and of jesus the same god and the same jesus is very different from the other view I bring that up because uh, you talk about worshiping with people in China and worshiping with people in Greece, and, I, and I'm curious as to whether or not my, my theory holds water when you go outside of this nation into other places. So based on what you, you, you just explained, I would almost 100% agree. The only thing is, Culture, based on ethnic or linguistic lines, I would say is not what actually differentiates it. It's, just, it's purely socioeconomics. That's what I would argue. Because when I go to China and I see women holding babies in sweatshops, sewing sealy mattresses with my bare eyes, and I witness watermelon farmers and, and, and a girl who's at the best high school in the province call herself a peasant and her father and mother spend all of their money and they only eat meat once a year. They eat watermelon and rice to send their daughter to that best school who's going on a full ride in English and math to college and is a Christian. Mm -hmm. I see the same exact things that I would see in our our heritage here. But that's because it's coming from the background of what you were explaining, oppress versus an oppressor. Mm -hmm. So when you take out the ethnic linguistic lines and we look at the some of the bare the bare um, rhetoric that we will see in scripture, right? In the gospels of when Jesus is who is Jesus ministered to? Who is he talking about? Who are we supposed to protect? Who are we who is, he, who, who is he nearest to? Mm -hmm. When we look at it in that sense, a liberation theology, yes. that's not bound by ethnic lines. That's bound by those that, that oppressor versus oppress. And so I think that's what I would say I, I did notice. That's what I would agree with, that when you are in a position, you know, when you are wealthy, you are God here. You are a god here. Mm -hmm. Who are you to worship? Mm -hmm. I can do anything. I can build. President this. Donald Trump says he doesn't feel like he has to ask God's forgiveness <laughs> for anything. <laughs> I mean, that that's a quote, or as close to a direct quote as, as I can get. I don't believe I have to ask God's forgiveness for anything. <laughs> yes. How do you come to that conclusion? It has to be because you are so accustomed to being the oppressor, to being the one who is economically on top, uh, that, 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 that you have. It is taught behavior. Mm -hmm. I don't apologize to anyone. It's kind of ingrained when you think about the whole pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Right. That type of thing. And, and you know, there's, there's a place for that. You should work hard. You should pull yourself up. You should do these certain things. But 
it is still antagonistic in the basic sense that you need to be relying on Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm. And so when that is ingrained in some of our other evangelical, white evangelical brothers and sisters who, who take on that type of notion and don't realize that that is antagonistic to really the teachings of Jesus Christ, they kind of fake themselves out. Jesus becomes a role model, right? It's like, you can, you can actually be like Jesus, Mm -hmm. maybe better. Mm -hmm. Right. And so that has a huge implications when it comes to not just our ability or inability to fellowship with one another, whether that's our ability to practice love, whether that's our ability to get on one accord and, and, and just justice, um, to produce policies that are beneficial, compromise, all of that plays out because there's this completely different and, and, and antagonistic understanding of who Jesus Christ is in relation to your political or socioeconomic status. Mm-hmm. Right? So you can see, I'm from the Belize, and you might disagree with this, that oftentimes, especially maybe more so in, in, in history, maybe a couple of decades ago, you would follow your clergy and in, 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 in their teachings of pretty much anything else. That is, that is almost law. You're going to follow them to the T. Mm-hmm. It's not until what they are telling you contradicts a form of identity that is at the same level of Jesus Christ in their life or higher, which is most often wealth. When you begin to come for their pocketbooks or say something that is anti or, or against their pocketbooks or congregation's pocketbooks, then they will respond. So then who's God? I want you to say it because I, I already know the answer. But but, 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 but who's God? If, 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 and and I, I, I agree with what you just said. But then does that not mean that God is not Yahweh? God is not Jesus. God is not the indwelling, infilling presence of the Holy Spirit. But God is currency. God is the dollar or the ruble or whatever form of currency that you take. And the abundance of currency and the desire for a greater abundance of currency is is our aspirational goal. And anything or anyone that threatens our craving, our coveting of currency becomes a threat to us. Yes. But I would argue that that means you, you've constructed an idol. Yes. Or idols. Yes. Uh, it's a whole pantheon. And that's dangerous. <laughs> Very much so. And we're seeing so now. And, and, and you're passing it on to, to subsequent generations, to, to your progeny. And they don't know any better, and they're not going to be open to the reality that they have been mis, mistaught, misled. Uh, they think that there's nothing wrong with equating wealth, capitalism, patriotism mm. uh, with the worship of Christ. There's... They see them all as being the same. In our hymnals, in, in, in the songs that we sing for a long time, it included national hymns. The Star Spangled Banner was in our hymnal. The Battle Hymn of the Republic was in our hymnal. God Bless America, America the Beautiful. These songs were in our hymnal. Is that not an equating of patriotism with God? Of course it is. And I would say that when it comes to those who would advocate that belief versus those who do not, I think we start to get into the issue of who's actually heard the gospel. It's it's, it's kind of taken for granted that we are in a Christian nation, which I would disagree with. But That's since our I. founding fathers, and it's a major part, there's the Judeo-Christian values that are a huge part of our of our society. Mm-hmm. But it's taken for granted that when you have so much of that for so many generations, for hundreds of years, 
there's not that many people who's actually heard the gospel in the United States of America. That's a, that's that that's a bad assumption. Mm-hmm. So we're dealing with a lot of non-believers. That's what I would argue. Mm-hmm. That the vast majority of America, where they say now it's roughly fifty percent or forty percent, to some extent, you know, are Christian. Much higher in the that's the general population, but much higher among African Americans. Yes. But I would say for the majority of us, it's, 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 that's, that number is much lower. That figure is much lower because they haven't actually heard the gospel yet. Because if, if you're hearing that, that is a false teaching. That's not the gospel. Yeah. They haven't heard it. There's no different from them than some tribe you found that find in Papua New Guinea. It might be worse. Mm-hmm. Because that's the Yeah, because they think they have something <laughs> that they, in fact, don't have. Exactly. So how... How is that overcome? Uh, and, 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 and I'm not naive. It takes generations uh, to, to undo that kind of, of hubris uh, that, that exists. But there has to be a, a strategic attack on that kind of ignorance, on that kind of, of willful ignorance. If... Uh, we are going to ultimately see the gospel prevail in our daily living. One of the things we've we've spoken about before is that specifically in the African-American community, we're coming on a time where there are more and more people who have completely distant from the church. For like examples of me who have no understanding of not just Jesus Christ, but the black church at all. Mm-hmm. And one of the challenges I think is that the church period, but specifically looking at the black church, has always been on the forefront of progressive social issues. Mm-hmm. But that starts to wane. They're not on the forefront. People aren't seeing the work of Jesus Christ as a liberator. Mm-hmm. as they may have in the past. Mm-hmm. I think in order to overcome that in future generations, we have to we have to reclaim that as part of our heritage. We say it. We say it to each other. Mm-hmm. I will question that. Now, you, you bring up a very good point because while we're pointing fingers over there, we need to point some fingers at ourselves, this waning didn't just start uh, ten years ago, or five years ago, or twenty years ago. This waning started on the very heels of the of the changes that the civil rights movement, led by the black church, mm-hmm. brought about. There was a a younger group of more militant, uh, uh, less patient. Uh, African-American people uh, who were not necessarily Christian. They, 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 uh, and they, they were of no particular uh, spiritual belief at all. What they were was tired. <laughs> they were tired of being oppressed and they were tired of being uh, uh, discriminated against and they were tired of, of, of the obvious evidences of bigotry that they had to deal with on a daily basis basis and they were interested in immediate change uh and they weren't any more interested in 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 a social gospel that talked about uh non-violent approaches to to change or civil disobedience they, they were talking about taking up arms and 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 fighting toe to toe and, and it, it's a mischaracterization to say that that was just people who were of the black Muslim movement and, and of the Malcolm X movement. Everybody loves to lift up the by any means necessary uh, uh, quote uh, from Malcolm X. But these were people who, who, were, who were not just uh, Muslim. Uh, they, they were of no particular religious belief at all. What they were were black nationalists who said, I'm tired of this crap. 
and we ain't taking this off nobody. And if y'all want us to peacefully sit in and protest, then y'all as big a, a problem as, as as those white folk are. We want what we want, and we want it right now, and we're willing to fight and die in order to achieve it. And and so at the very uh, heels near the near the end of, of of the civil rights era you started to see a schism that 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 uh, evolved within the african-american community Pe- people forget we all think of dr king now as as a hero universally loved and adored but the truth of the matter is in the last five years of his life he was not loved not even within the african-american community he dared stand up to the president of the United States and say that Vietnam was wrong. He dared stand up and say that capitalism was wrong. He dared stand up and say that if you're not willing to help poor people of all races, uh, of, of every hue, of every ethnicity, then you are not practicing the true social justice of Jesus Christ. And he lost followers because of the positions that he took. And it was only through his assassination that that he reclaimed the, the, the kind of uh, 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 iconic uh, place that he now holds in American culture. So the schism started in the mid-60s and has only broadened over time. And this is not a lecture. I, I'm simply making the point that the schism that you are pointing to has its roots in, in the very thing that, that, that brought about the greatest social change uh, in the history of this nation. So you have to go all the way back to where the schism started mm-hmm. in order to begin the process of healing. I think one of the best examples of that can be seen when MLK, uh, probably one of his most notorious defeats in Albany, right? So he goes up north from the south, most of his work is done in the South. It's a whole nother devil. Right. It's not the same. Right? Still racist. <laughs> Extremely. Right. But they're a little smarter. I'm not going to just beat you in front of cameras. I'm going to say nice things to you. I'm mm-hmm. going to offer you glasses of water. Mm-hmm. When you look at that and you examine it's that divide there that starts with the South and the North, right? When it comes to black intellectual thought, how are we going to move forward, even black religious thinking? The lack of, of evolution to evolve, because eventually the, what happens in the North, slowly but surely it comes to the South, right? It's more diverse. You have a little bit more opportunities. There's variations of blackness and black thoughts. You know, you're in New York City, there's been free blacks, 1700s, 1600s. It's not the same there. It's lynchings, but you're not completely looking, um, completely, life isn't always in jeopardy. Mm-hmm. So the lack of getting to a consensus of how can we move forward understanding the forethought that this is actually going to happen down south I think stunts the growth and the development from the Christian black church's perspective that because there is this schism because what's happening in the south is very distinct from what's happening in the north and you're never on the same page that divide just just grows because the socioeconomics of the entire country eventually becomes like the North. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, how does the church respond honestly uh, given the, 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 the social climate that exists today to the realities that are? Not, not the tribalism of Trump or uh, uh, the partisan attitudes of conservative Republicans or the hypocrisy of evangelical Christians who claim to love Jesus but uh, will support full-throatedly uh, people who don't believe that they have anything 
to ask God's forgiveness for. How does the church, the true church, find a voice uh, in the midst of all of this? Well, I think there's, there's two levels to that. There's the interaction with the secular world, and then there's also the internal that I would include some of our mainstream white counterparts in. Looking at internally what's happened, I think that as the black church, we've just grown accustomed to our white counterparts not gonna be do not gonna do anything and not gonna be nothing. Mm-hmm. We've grown accustomed to it. Maybe I'm naive. Maybe I'm a bit too optimistic. But we can't just hold them accountable in our sermons, in our community. We're part of the same denominations as these people. We can attend their same national. Co- we are welcomed and invited and want to be in the photo ops, mm-hmm. right? In these national conventions, they have to be held accountable there as well. Our white counter, our white counterparts that are that are trying to push this under the rug, that aren't allowing. Um, really the flow of, of, of love that Jesus Christ teaches us, they have to be held accountable. It has to be explicitly stated. And sometimes we will make certain compromises because maybe they'll help you start off, start up church, right? Maybe they'll help you with a grant here and there. Mm-hmm. And you'll make a compromise and I'll make a sermon. I ain't got a problem saying it now in front of my congregation. Mm -hmm. But when I get to that national convention and there's cameras watching and there's this and all of these happening, I'm not saying much. Mm -hmm. I'm not protesting this. Mm -hmm. You have to either kick me out or you have to, we have to at least deliberate on this matter. Mm Mm-hmm. And so I think that that's one of the areas that maybe I am a bit optimistic. Maybe I am naive. But I think holding them accountable, the majority aren't probably going to come. But there's going to be a few. That's going to touch the spirits of a few. You know what? I've been afraid. You know, we've been doing our little involvement here and there and under the table. I just don't know how the others are going to react. But they know that they actually do have a home. They know that they are part of a true family. I think you could bring a few of them over. So I think that that's, that's one aspect of looking within as far as within the church, um, including not just the black church, but the church period. But I think our interactions as far as in politics, our messages have gotten so mixed in with partisanship. Mm-hmm. There are aspects that could fit partisan lines, ideological lines, but when you supremely identify your faith with this party or this party, that is problematic. Mm -hmm. The Republican Party and the Democratic Party are not the parties of Jesus Christ. Agreed. But so often, and one of the things I've noticed is that more well-educated churches, whether it's black churches that are more educated, They'll fall in line with that. They become more affluent. These are the circles that they be that they're able to run in. Mm-hmm. They might even be elected to political mm-hmm. offices. Mm-hmm. But then you also get to Republicans or to some of our evangelical counterparts. They'll do the same thing with the Republican Party. Mm-hmm. That's mixing the message. That's mixing who Jesus Christ is, what type of impact he can have on people's lives. In the outside world, which is increasingly becoming larger and larger, and the and the churches are dwindling, what is that saying to them? Who Jesus is? Mm-hmm. We have to always keep that in mind, especially if we go back and consider the fact that it's not a lot of believers. It's a lot of these people have not heard the gospel. Mm-hmm. What is that? What is that showing to them? Jesus is a Democrat. Jesus is a Republican. Who is Jesus Christ? Because we have to differentiate ourselves from all of the filth and mess. We have to carry that burden now. You can't pick and choose anymore. You have to say, okay, this is on the table. 
let me show you who Jesus Christ is. This, 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 this is filth. And I, I acknowledge this. I acknowledge this. I acknowledge this. But let me show you. This is Jesus Christ. That has to always be in the forefront. We have to always consider, especially consider what we just said, that most of the people we're talking about now have never heard the gospel. Mm -hmm. We have to always think of them. And if they heard the gospel, if they heard what, what liberation theology uh, people, liberation theologians would call, would describe as the gospel, would they embrace it? Uh, or, or, or nobody has a problem with God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son mm -hmm. that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life we all can quote that what we do have a problem with is the spirit of the Lord is upon me for he has a, a, anointed me to preach good news to the poor to set at liberty the captive to give sight to the blind to preach the year of our Lord's favor we, not everybody embraces that because that that's a different message, but it comes from the same, mm -hmm. same Jesus. Uh, not, not everybody embraces when I was hungry, you fed me. And when I was sick, you visited me. And when I was naked, you gave me clothing. Uh, that, that calls for something else. Not everybody embraces take everything that you have and sell it and give the money to the poor and then come and follow me. All of these things are the words of the one and the same Jesus. How is it that we pick and choose to uplift one to the neglect of the others? I'm of the belief that, that Jesus and the church is conservative in many aspects because there is a standard a standard of behavior that is expected of every person who is a follower of Christ. Jesus says, unless you love, you cannot be my disciple. Unless you forgive, you cannot be my disciple. Unless you uh, uh, have mercy on others, you cannot be a part of my kingdom. There is a standard, and, and, and standards generally are conservative. But the problem is, even though, even, even though Jesus espouses a standard, he also expresses toleration for those who fall far short mm -hmm. of the standard. He says to the woman caught in adultery, let him who's without sin cast the first stone. And then when nobody throws a stone, he says, neither do I condemn you. But he also says, go and sin no more. He lifts up the standard. So, 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 so there is, there is a, 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 a progressive message to the gospel. There is also a conservative message to the gospel because Jesus is neither progressive nor conservative. Jesus is Jesus. And he expects us to emulate and follow him. And that means that we have to tear, tear ourselves away from the ideology of world politics and world economics and embrace Christ and let him be the filter through which everything else uh, radiates in our lives and we tend to do just the opposite we let our uh, economic status and our economic aspiration color our view of Christ mm -hmm. so that that script has to be flipped in some kind of way and that message has to go out and has to go out consistently and maybe in a century or two <laughs> people will actually embrace the, the gospel of Jesus Christ I would say, yes, that's a problem, right? But I would say that that's, that's been fairly consistent throughout time, throughout the history of Christianity. It becomes a bigger problem when poor, working class, middle income, people start buying into the other side, right? So when you are poor and you're talking about patriotism this and is Jesus Christ and not standing for the flag and is against God and this type of economic aspect and socialism is, is antichrist and all of these types. When you are poor, mm -hmm. you have nothing 
but Jesus, and you're relying on something that props up the wealth, that's when it becomes a real big issue. So I would say that that issue has always been there. You're going to always have that because if you're wealthy, you're going to have, not all the time, but oftentimes you're going to have an antagonistic relationship. But when you start to be able to manipulate the minds of the masses where poor people are starting to buy into this and they reap no reward ever, that's when we get into murky water. It stems from a, 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 a racial animus that overrides anything and everything else that takes place in this country. Mm-hmm. The problem in America today that, that we are so focused on, and, and it's not a new problem, it's, it's just uh, been resurrected in a, in a particularly uh, repugnant form uh, in, 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 in the face of Donald Trump and, and, and Republican conservatism. Uh, but, but the problem is poor white folks still want to think they're better than black folks. Mm-hmm. The poorest white person in the world wants to think he's still better than than than, than anybody who, who is of color. And there is a basic fear of black and brown people, and the and 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 the browning of America has to be the worst thing in the world. Who is it who 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 takes advantage of abortions overwhelmingly in this country? It's not brown people. It's not black people. Do, do brown and black people have abortions? Yes, but not at the same rate as white folk do. So one of the reasons why it's so important to put a man like Brett Kavanaugh on the Supreme Court is that Republicans and conservatives feel like that will tip the scale in the favor of reversing Roe v. Wade and, and outlawing abortion. And if you outlaw abortion, then you, you slow the browning of America, because more white children will be born. And I know that sounds like conspiratorial, uh, paranoid, delusional talk, but I'm telling you that, that there is truth in that if you look at it. Kavanaugh says that Roe v. Wade is settled law, but that's until the next case makes its way to the Supreme Court. And then we're going to see a shift. Kavanaugh says the presidential powers are almost universal, that the president can't be indicted, the president can't be subpoenaed, the president can't be brought into question for high crimes and misdemeanors. That goes against the, the entire uh, 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 teaching of, of the Constitution, the, the writing of the Constitution, that there is no power, uh, there, there's no office that is any higher than any other, uh, and, and, and that all of them are subject to the same law. Supposedly, uh, Kavanaugh says that that uh, law enforcement has broad uh, uh, powers with regard to how they carry out that law enforcement, even if it means the loss of life uh, to black and brown people who who are marginalized in in American society. There is a method to the madness of of, of putting a man like Kavanaugh on the Supreme Court bench and this has to do with an overall fear that exists within large segments of America of of of, of the browning of this nation and a resentment of 8 years of Barack Obama as president of the United States and we're seeing it played out in our church and in our church life which is why I say that church life is far less far less about theology than it is about culture. Hmm. And yet somehow or other, we, we, we work to try to see to it that the gospel pierces through all of that foolishness and, and, and shines its light into what, what, what is a dim and dark society. Going back to MLK, who you brought up, <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, one of the last things he was working on, right, was getting, was bridging the gap between poor people. Yes. Period. Yes. And we have movements all the way back to the beginning of the U.S., the founding of the U.S., where you have these spurts where of populism, as they would call it, 
There's various forms of populism and what that can mean. It's a very generic term. But you have this, these form, these spurts of populism where you have like black and whites, poor farmers that get together and it's squashed immediately. It's one of the scariest things that end up happening. And one of the things of dividing religiously or religious teachings for poor whites to be aligned with wealthier whites is so that they can't align religiously with with poor blacks and poor browns. Because if that happens, right, if the amount of poor white people, if you think about the, how large that number is, if their understanding of Jesus Christ is the same as ours, oh, there's a problem. Yes. That's when religion, you know, why places like China will outlaw certain uh, aspects of, of Christianity or religion, period. Because, oh, that's an issue. That's a serious threat when we are worshiping the same God. Mm -hmm. And so when I make the case for internally holding people accountable, we do that for blacks. But we have to also come to whites and say, I understand how you feel about this. I understand how you feel about this. But look at your school. Rural white schools are horrible. Yes. They're not better than inner city black schools. Yes. Their education and literacy rate isn't better. But the gap isn't, hasn't been connected. The bridge isn't there. It's been destroyed. Sometimes, you know, every 30-something years or so, it tries to get built and it's squashed. Yes. But what happens when that becomes, when the church is a catalyst of that. When the church is the primary moving force, because they can try to destroy individuals in these individual movements, but when it's the church, they still haven't destroyed us because they don't have that authority. Yes. So what happens when the church is behind building that bridge by the power of Jesus Christ, right? The Holy Ghost is building that bridge with us. What happens then? And I would argue that I'm not sure if that actually has taken place yet in this country. I agree. I so agree. I would think that's that's the next move. Because we settle for something that is substantially less. And we we hide behind uh, denomination and uh, supposed religious fervor uh, and freedom in order to espouse a kind of racism mm. uh, that is far more palatable and far more acceptable to American society. I've never seen a society where if you have one of, of someone else, you're fully integrated. <laughs> if, if, if you have 99 whites and one black, they will stand up and say, we're fully diverse. <laughs> that, is, that is true. And yet that's that's the America that we live in. Or it gets more complex where they say you have one black, one Latino, one Asian, and one woman, and 96 white men. We are incredibly diverse. Yes. This is yes. the beacon of hope. And if it's in a church, this is what heaven's going to look like. <laughs> People of all different hues and, and races and it's the biggest bunch of Huey in the world, and yet we fall for it time and time again. One more thing, because uh, I've got to bring this to a close. You are a social scientist. Mm. Uh, uh, as a social scientist, you rely heavily on data, on on the objective gathering of data, and and. Uh, use of data in order to draw uh, objective and logical conclusions. Faith is not a matter of data. Faith is not a matter of, of being able to draw objective and logical conclusions. How do you blend your faith walk with Christ, with your academic pursuits and uh, uh, your work as a social scientist so 
I wouldn't use the term that I even blended. I would, I view science, because what we're talking about is science here. Science is a tool, a tool we need. That is never to be confused with your faith. Mm-hmm. However, you would be foolish to not want a structural engineer to build your bridge, right? Mm-hmm. You, we need science to have this room standing. Mm-hmm. It is a tool that is supposed to make us, that is supposed to allow us to, to show our faith, to glorify God. Mm-hmm. So when I go about quantitative research, when I'm looking at data, when I am objectively doing things, that is to glorify God. That isn't to take the place of faith. They don't, they, it can't take the place. It, it, it's faith and it's science. But if you have faith and you don't have science, then you're very limited on what you can do. You can't exercise your faith, especially since it's, that science is available to you and you choose not to use it. Mm-hmm. You can't exercise your faith to the fullest extent, which means you are not completely fulfilling God's purpose for you to the full effect that you could flip. If you have science without faith, what are you doing? <laughs> what is the point? You have no purpose at all. Mm-hmm. So using singing science, using quantitative data, being a social scientist, thinking about these tools and my access to these different things, it is to continue the mission. It is to further and progressive because so, so many times, whether and I and we're talking mostly about the black church, they don't have data. No, they don't know what's going on. We don't. It's just whimsical, right? And a part of some of the teachings in in, in scriptures, you need knowledgeable people. Mm-hmm. You need some engineers. Mm-hmm. You need this, and you do have good use of this. Mm-hmm. You're pr- trying to pray everything away, and I'm not saying nothing's wrong. You should be praying. You should be praying while working mm-hmm. and using that science. Mm-hmm. You know, I'll, if, if, I, if I have a surgeon, I want my surgeon to be praying before, during, and after mm-hmm. <laughs> performing that surgery, right? <laughs> it's not that you just want someone praying not have a surgeon. So I view it as that they fit together. This accomplishes. This pushes us along. This progresses us. This helps us evolve as the church. And for so long, the black church has has not only not had those resources, but when we had the opportunity to get those resources, I would say that we have shunned them. Yeah, I, I tend to agree. Um, uh, typically, uh, and, and I know this is going to, once again, sound a little surface and, and perhaps a little generic, but typically uh, we have relied on charisma and emotion to lift our churches and to draw and retain people. And, and, and we simply try to maintain that lift through charisma and emotion. And we have shunned or have not yet seen the value of doing scientific research and, and, and using data in order to help us conduct the gospel. Uh, I've been saying for for 25 years uh, that we practice a a shotgun uh, uh, evangelism. Uh, We we shoot at something uh, with buckshot (laughs) in the hope that one of the pellets will hit what you're trying to, to bring down. But we do that because we're not actually confident of what it is that we're, that we're trying to hit. And so we're just trying to hit something. And, and, and hopefully we'll hit the right thing and, and it'll help propel the gospel forward. Uh, when you know what you're shooting at, you don't use buckshot. <laughs> That's true. You, you, you use a rifle. <laughs> and, 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 you, and you take down what it is that you're trying to hit. And, and so it, it's an indicator that that we we have not been 100% certain as to what it is that we're trying to hit and how to go about hitting it. And, and so we've we've relied uh, on inspiration and uh, uh, charisma 
in order to conduct our work. Uh, and it's served to our detriment uh, because there's data out there. And, and we need to be about the business of gathering data. I went to a conference last year uh, in Charlotte, North Carolina, and one of the things that they lifted up is the fact that black churches are surprisingly lacking in data. Data about their churches, about their members, data about the communities in which they reside and the needs that exist within that community. We have feelings, we have intuitions, we have ideas, but we don't have data. And 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 the lack of data, uh, by necessity, dulls our ability to focus in on those things that need to be focused in on. So I, I wholeheartedly agree. We have with to stop obsession. looking at them as secular tools. Yeah. That's that's completely wrong. Yeah. <laughs> These are tools to be used by spiritual people. Yeah. And as long as we continue to go down that path of not recognizing these as tools that we should be possessing, yeah. that we should be on the forefront. We should have the, the, the best biologist should be a member of a Shiloh, right. wherever they are respectively. Right. Until we get to that point, then we will always be lacking those resources to quote unquote, build up the bridge that I'm talking about yeah. with some of our white counterparts. I agree. I appreciate the time. Appreciate the conversation. Oh, thank you. Uh, you and I always have great conversations, and they usually last like four or five hours. So, <laughs> so, so, so this one is short by comparison. But thank you for taking the time no, to be thank our you. guest today, and I hope you'll come back again soon. Thank you for viewing. Thank you for listening. We'll be back again next time.